Well, if you can open your Bibles to Galatians, Galatians chapter 4. I want you to imagine a kind of a scenario with me, a thought experiment. A thought experiment. Let's say one day you were, you took a plane to Los Angeles on business, and you board the plane, and there's a gentleman sitting next to you who's wearing a khaki pants, a button-up shirt, a, a dark blue blazer, and you sit down, you start conversing with him. He's articulate. He's smart. He seems normal. He tells you he's the C, C, CFO of a mid a mid-sized tech company, and the plane takes off, and then suddenly the man that you've been chatting with for, for, for some minutes takes out a box of a, a Lego set, and he starts building a race car. And you think, well, okay, that's, that's interesting. I, I guess there are Lego sets for adults these days, right? You can get a Lego set of, your, of a, an Atari game system of your past, or of the Eiffel Tower, or, or the White House. And then so he builds it, and when he starts, and when he's done, he starts, he starts playing with the toy. He starts taking the guys, and he's like, hey, he's just playing, and like my little boys do. I mean, what would you think? And a little while later, as you're, you're cruising high altitude, he, he pulls out a plastic sword, and he starts hitting you on the shoulder and, the, and on the legs, like my little two boys do when I get home. You're like, eh. And what would you think? You would think, this is strange. Because he's an adult acting like a child. And sooner or later, after he hits you hard enough with this plastic sword, you would say, sir, will you grow up? You're acting like my children at home. And this was the situation, spiritually speaking, in the lives of the Galatian church. There in the Galatian church that Paul addresses in this letter were fully grown spiritual adults playing with toys of the law. They were freed men and women wanting to be slaves again. They were fully grown adults wanting to enroll in elementary school. So the book of Galatians is Paul's letter to them telling them to grow up. Last Sunday, we were instructed about the purpose of the Mosaic Law in light of the promised blessing of salvation made in the Abrahamic Covenant. Paul reminded the Galatian church that the law was an instrument of death that convicted sinners of their guilt and that the law represented an era of history in God's plan of redemption. One of the ways Paul uses the term law in this book is in terms of a dispensation in in history where God humbled and prepared his children for the inheritance of Christ promised to Abraham in Genesis 12. So when Christ came, the era of the centrality of the law ended, and a new age of God's plan of salvation begun. And Paul called this era, as we consider last Sunday in chapter 4, verse 4, the fullness of time. The slavery of the law now set aside permanently, Christ's entrance into the world marks a new era in God's plan where God's people in proportions unheard of in the Old Testament in the Old Testament, are being redeemed under the law. God's people are, are, are being ad- adopted into God's family with the same rights of inheritance as God's only Son, Jesus Christ. In other words, the beginning of chapter 4 taught us that as sons, we have the same unconditional, unlimited right of access to God our Father that Jesus has. And we have this assurance that this is true because the Holy Spirit indwelling within us witnesses to our spirits about our new relationship to God the Father. In fact, the Spirit teaches us to cry out the same words Jesus cried to the Father in His darkest hour on earth in the Garden of Gethsemane the words, Abba, Father. What, is the, what, it, what did this address signify? That Christ's rights with the Father are our rights. That his inheritance 
from the Father promised to him is now our inheritance promised to us. That the same kingdom that God will give his son will be given to us with him. That the same love that Jesus basks in and enjoys from God the Father is the same love we get to revel in and enjoy too. It means that the same glorified body that God gave his son when he rose from the dead will be given to us in our future resurrection. Abba, Father. Today, as we continue along, Paul turns a big corner in verses 8 through 20. Paul shifts from a theological argument to an emotional appeal. Paul goes from being their pastor to being their friend. Paul moves from biblical logic to tears of emotion. And so let me read those verses for you before we continue. Verses 8 through 20. Paul writes, However, at that time when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. But now, having, been, having known God, or, or rather, having been known by God, How is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you want to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you for nothing. I beg of you, brothers, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You have done me no wrong, but you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I Proclaim the gospel to you the first time. And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Where then is that sense of blessing you had? For I testify to you that if possible, possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. So have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? They zealously seek you, Not commendably, but they wish to shut you out so that you will zealously seek them. But it is is good always to be zealously sought in a commendable manner, and not only when I am present with you, my children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you, but I could wish to be present with you now and to change my tone because I am perplexed about you. As we move through these verses this morning, we are going to consider two big truths for our hearts and minds to chew on. And the first one is found in verses 8 through 11. Truth number one, a Christless Christianity is just as pagan as no Christianity. A Christless Christianity is just as bad as no Christianity. In verse 8, the first Greek word uh, that that most of your English Bibles, and including mine, do not translate, do not translate, but but is there, is the coordinating conjunction but. With his conjunction, beginning verse 8, Paul contrasts the Galatians' current status as adopted sons, described in verses 6 and 7, to their former lives in verse 8. Verse 8 says, however, at that time in the past, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. Today, God has sent forth the Spirit within you, crying, Abba, Father, you are therefore no longer a slave, but a son, uh, verse 6 and 7. But there was a time in the past when that wasn't the case. When you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are not gods. Paul Paul is writing to Gentile believers. The the Galatian churches are filled with Gentile believers. And we know that's the case because they're, 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 they're trying to be persuaded to be circumcised. If they were Jewish believers, that wouldn't, that, that wouldn't be necessary. And so Paul says to them, reminds them, you used to be pagans who worshipped idols and statues and you were, you were caught up in magic and, and worldly philosophies. Some of you engaged in the worship of Caesar even. These idols weren't really true gods, Paul says. You were slaves to gods that did not have a true divine nature. At best, they were 
projections of your sinful desires. these, These imaginary idols by nature had no power. They could do no real and lasting good for you. At the very worst, these idols you, you, you served were actually demonic spirits. Some of us, in our pasts, we worshipped ourselves. We made ourselves little gods. Paul said in Romans 1 that in rejecting the knowledge of God, we became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the likeness of corruptible man. We're, before God saved us, and even now, there's, there's, there is this corruption within us. Every time I go to my dentist, my dentist says the same thing. My gum lines are receding. I, I hear more fours and fives than I did before. He so says, you're going to need a deep clean soon. And so we can stall the aging process a little bit with exercise and diet, but you can't stop it permanently. We experience our corruption day after day. We get older and older, and yet we, we used to keep trying to, we, we kept trying to find salvation within us. We foolishly thought that the, that the answers were somehow hidden away within us. Only if we thought long enough and hard enough, we could find some sort of self-salvation in, inside of our, our beings. I still have friends from college in their, in their mid-40s, late-40s, and they're, they're posting posts on Instagram. And just read a, a post of a friend who's just lost, and he says, I, I still haven't found what I'm looking for, but I'm, I, I, I have, I'm, I'm still going to keep trying. And I think to myself, how old do you have to get to realize that heaven and salvation is outside of us? That heaven and salvation comes through revelation. And, and we were once these kinds of uh, slaves of hopelessness, weren't we? Slaves of our fleshly desires that never fully satisfied and never satisfied us and never went away either. We were Slaves of confusion and grief and regret and guilt. We were slaves who thought in endless circles that somehow the answers were found within us. So Paul, in verse 9, from the present, in verse 6 and 7, as adopted sons of God, to the past, of uh, 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 verse 8, when we were slaves to to idols, uh, now he moves back again to the present in verse 9, he, he moves from our past of not knowing God in verse 8 to our present situations of knowing God in verse 9. But now, verse 9 says, having known God, or rather having been known by God, Paul says you, you used to be a slave to, to idols, but now you know God. Paul more exactly says having known God. And the word for known here is gnosko in the Greek. It means to know in an intimate, personal way. The Galatians knew God uh, in this kind of manner. And, and then Paul corrects himself mid-sentence, and he says, or, or, or rather, having, having been known by God. In other words, our, our personal saving knowledge of, of God the Father is predicated first on God knowing us. And, and Paul emphasizes the, 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 the divine initiative in our salvation, we, we could never know God in a saving way unless God had first chosen to know you and me. First John 4.10 says this, And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. John, like Paul in Galatians 4, is not denying our side of the relationship. Rather, he is giving God's side of our relationship the greater prominence. Romans 8.29 says, Paul said this, because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. God redeemed us from sin by sending Christ to die for us, and this redemption is applied to us. And the various things God God does to apply our salvation to us are, are numerous in number. You see, we weren't automatically saved when Jesus died 2,000 years ago. You you didn't even exist then. 
you weren't automatically saved when you were born. So, so when did this application of salvation begin? Paul says in Romans 8, in eternity, in eternity past, when God foreknew you. And to foreknow someone in Scripture does not mean that God saw you before time choosing Him to be your God and then God choosing you in response. That's not how salvation works. You know, God isn't trying to, you know, he, He's trying to say, hey, pick me, pick me, please. And then we pick Him and He picks us back. No. To foreknow someone means to have a relationship with somebody in a personal and intimate way. It means to love, to love another in a deep way. And you see the, the meaning of that word first in Genesis 4.1 when it said that now the man knew his wife Eve and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. The word know here doesn't mean that Adam knew some information about Eve. It means that Adam loved his wife in the fullness of what it means for a, for a husband to love a wife. So when Paul in Romans 8 says that God foreknew us, it means that God chose to love us before time and eternity passed. So God foreknew you, then he predestined you, Paul says in Romans 8. That means to predetermine your destiny. To predetermine your destiny of, of, the, of heaven and the eternal. And then he called you effectually through the gospel. And after that, God uh, regenerated you. He gave you spiritual life. And once you were given spiritual life, you now had the, then had the ability to exercise faith in him. Yes, uh, you, 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 we exercise faith, but we could have never done that unless God had first foreknown, predestined, and regenerated you. Why is it impossible for a man or a woman to choose to believe in Christ outside of God's foreknowledge, and, out, and out, outside of predestination and regeneration, the answer is original sin. You were all born in sin, spiritually dead to God, unable to choose Him, and so God regenerated you. You believed in Him, and then God justified you through faith alone in Christ alone. The effectual call of God through the preaching gospel, regeneration, faith, justification, all happens at once in time, but there is a logical order of how this salvation is applied to you, the the order that I just gave you. Paul in Galatians 4.9 says, yes, you came to know God, but you could have never known God in the first place unless he had first known you. His knowledge of you includes all that he has done to save you. Sending Christ, foreknowledge, predestination, calling, regeneration, justification, union with him, uh, adoption. He does all this in your salvation. Why does Paul begin verse 9 that way? To communicate just how great a salvation you have because of God's grace. Why does Paul want to communicate to us the greatness of our salvation to set up the question he asks in the second part of verse 9. In light of the greatness of your salvation, why in the world would you want to, verse 9, turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you want to be enslaved all over again? Are you crazy, Galatians? Look at the end of verse 20. I am, I am perplexed about you. I am confused. Why do you want to play with toys again? Why do you want to be slaves again? Paul describes their past and our past in verse 9 as elemental things, the basic principles, the ABCs of, of, of pagan, uh, worldly living uh, like, like, do good, do something for God, good things will happen to you. Do something for God and earn your way to heaven. These, these elemental, basic things. You read it in the, in the scripture reading today in Hebrews 5. Paul uses the same kind of 
language to refer to the, he says, uh, but by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, the basics of Christianity. And, and Paul says, when you in the past, you were under the basics of this worldly approach to religion and spirituality. And then he says, he describes the quality of that, those elemental things as, verse 9, weak and worthless. They were weak and worthless. He says that this is, this is weak and worthless because it could never save you. It's weak and worthless because it had no power to transform your life. Why, why do you want to go back to the kindergarten of your childhood in light of so great a salvation? But what exactly were these Galatians being tempted to return to? Were they, were they in danger of going back to their paganism and the worship of false gods like Zeus, like Artemis of, of uh, Ephesus, like, like Caesar? No, look at verse 10. You observe days and months and seasons and years. What, what, are, what kind of days is Paul talking about? Sabbath days, the Passover, Jubilee years, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Day of Atonement. These days are Jewish holidays. They're not returning to their old pagan lives. They're, they they want to turn to Judaism. They want to turn to the law of Moses. And do you see what Paul is doing? He's equating Judaism with heathenism. He he equates submitting to the Torah in order to earn your acceptance with God with the worship of idols. He's equating the meritorious obedience of the law with the, with the heathen, prodigal, sinful lifestyle that comes with paganism. Uh, he is putting the Day of Atonement as practiced by first century Jews on the same level as sex rituals in the temple of Corinth. And beyond question, Paul is lumping Judaism together with paganism in this way in a radical and extreme manner. And, and, and he's going to be killed for this. The Galatians thought they were getting closer to, closer to God by getting closer to Moses. And Paul is saying the opposite is true. That anything that leads you away, even the law, from, the, from sole reliance on Christ alone, is leading you to hell. Paul says in these few verses that there is no difference between legalism and licentiousness. There's no real difference between living out a biblical morality and ethic and having conservative values without a genuine faith in Christ compared to a life of immoral debauchery and reckless and wild indulgence in our sinful desires. What Paul implies here is that both legalism and licentiousness are the same life before God. Galatians, they just want to be these good, proper Jewish adherents. And Paul says, this is the same thing as going back to your sinful pagan lifestyle. It's weak, it's worthless, external, moral, religious living without a personal knowledge of Christ is worthless. Why is it the same thing? Why is biblical legalism and worldliness the same thing? Because both systems teach you that you need to save yourself. Earning your salvation through scrupulous biblical morality and religion is just as elementary as outright paganism and all its immoral practices. In the end, the religious person is just as lost and damned as the person without any religion. Both roads lead to the same fiery hell. So if, if you remember in the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15, 
the immoral son at first in the beginning of the story and, and the older son throughout the story, they're in the same boat together. Because while they both wanted their father's wealth, neither of them wanted their father. In the, be- in the beginning of the story, they're both equally alienated from him. And if anything, the idolatry of a Christianity without a genuine faith is more dangerous than an idolatry of worldliness because it's less obvious. You see, at least the prodigal son knew that he was very far away from the father. The old brother, the older brother, who did everything right, easily deceived himself that he was right with his father because he thought proximity to him, proximity to religion, was the same thing as a real relationship with the Father. Verse 11, Paul is afraid for the Galatians. He knows this new slavery to Judaism is perhaps worse than their past because the Galatians wouldn't know just how far away they were from God. He's struggling to even believe there are genuine believers He's questioning their salvation. He's questioning all of his ministry done to them over the years. And now we move to our our second big truth in this passage to think about. Truth number two, through 20, is this. Genuine Christianity is a personal Christianity. Genuine Christianity is a personal Christianity. In the second section of our passage this morning, Paul models for us what does Christianity look like on a normal day-to-day basis? What should it look like for us in the th- in, in, on the weekends and, you know, when, when you have time off? Uh, Paul sets forth, by example, Christian living. Because sometimes we think that You know, the public ministry of the pastor is the model of what our lives need to look like. I need to be preaching like the pastor to many people, and unless I'm doing that, I'm I'm really falling short of all I can be in Christ. I'm this second-class citizen, or or we think I need to have this public platform of my own ministry and be invited to conferences and write and publish books and have a large following. Then I will be all I am can be in Christ. And none of that is true. All of that is abnormal Christianity. And I don't mean abnormal in the sense of bad or evil. I I mean just in the way that, that only very few in the church have that kind of life. That is not the norm. Verse 12 through 20 is a model of the norm. It's the kind of personal ministry we should all inspire to. It's this small ministry that needs to be at the heart of how we understand what Christianity should look like. True Christianity is not Christian conference culture and and public platforms of famous preachers. It's not Shepherd's Conference. It's not Grace to You. It's not Desiring God Ministries. That's just 1% of it. That's 0.5% of it. It's in these verses that exhibit true, genuine religion. Paul models for us in these verses what is 99% of the normal Christian life. And it starts by, in verse 12, being an example to others. It starts by being a personal example to others. In verse 12, In the Greek, it begins with the words, become as I am. In New Testament Greek, the way writers emphasize something was by placing the word or or, or words at the beginning of the sentence. And that's what's happening here. From the the get-go, Paul says, become as I am. Become like me. As what, Paul? Well, as he described himself so far in the letter, Chapter 2, verse 19, he was dead to the law. Chapter 2, verse 20, 
I have been crucified with Christ, and Christ now lives in me, and, and now I live by faith alone. Chapter 221, not setting aside the grace of God by trying to earn my salvation through the law. Chapter 3, 6 to chapter 4, verse 7, all the benefits of being a son of Abraham by, by faith in Christ. Because become as I am, for I also have become as you are. In exchange for living under the law as a faithful Jew, Paul exchanged that life for faith in Christ alone. In that sense, he became like a Gentile sinner. Ironically, the Galatians wouldn't be the person that Paul left behind. So Paul says, no, don't, don't become like me in the past. Become like me when you first received Christ. Not under the law, no circumcision. No, no dietary restrictions, no Sabbath-keeping. Become free like, like, like me. Chapter 5, verse 1. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. In other words, our personal ministry to others starts with our own faith in the gospel, living a life in a manner worthy of the gospel, you don't want to think that I'm living for Christ, for God alone, and for myself alone. That's, there, there's one more party involved. We live for Christ for others too. For our spouses, for our children. We live Christ-centered lives because others look at us, and they're inspired by us, and they're encouraged, and they're strengthened by us as they see our faith, as they see our love for Christ, as they, as they see him change us. And so when we fall away from him, it doesn't just hurt ourselves. It doesn't just offend God. It affects everybody we know in the church. I mean, if I denied Christ tomorrow, many of you would be really discouraged. You would be really stumbled. If you called me tomorrow and told me you were leaving the faith, I would be devastated. I would, I, would call the, I would take the week off. Imagine how Paul felt. The Galatian church, they're on the verge of apostasy, and, and Paul, instead of making this, this incredible long theological argument, now says, look at my life. Come as me. I get it. I struggle too. I go through hard times. Look at my faith. I had a friend who fell away from the faith a few years ago. Two young kids, and, I, and that was one of the first things I, I thought. Like, I, okay, fine, you're, you're, you're throw away eternal life. You're going to influence your kids to do the same? I mean, it's one thing for you to choose to go to hell, but do you really want to play a role in sending your, your little ones there too? We stay faithful to Christ for his glory. We stay faithful to Christ for ourselves. We also stay faithful to Christ for others in the church because we love people. See, living a life fully trusting in the gospel is important because we can always say to people who are, ever, who are struggling to leave their first love, we can say, look, I, I get it. I've had those moments. But become as I am. Paul ends verse 12 with, you've done me no wrong. Him when he had first met them, planting the church there, how did they treat him? He explains in verses 13 through 15. So you see, normal Christianity starts with being a personal example. And now, we're going to consider how normal Christianity continues being that example in the context of personal relationships. Paul says in verses 13 through 15, 
but you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I proclaimed the gospel to you the first time. And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition you did not despise or loathe, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Where then is that sense of blessing you had? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and, and given them to me. In these verses, Paul reminds the Galatians of the close relationship that they had enjoyed with Paul. In verse 13, Paul tells us that he had come to this area by providence. It wasn't part of his itinerary. He was, he was forced to stay there because of some bodily sickness. And when he was riddled by disease or, or some type of virus or some type of, of bodily issue, they did not despise him, verse 14. They did not loathe him. Literally, the word loathe is, is to spit upon. You, you didn't spit at me. Because in the first century, when, when people got sick, they, they viewed it as a sign that you were demon-possessed. They, they, they saw it as, as some divine displeasure. But when Paul, in his sickness, preached the gospel to them, they had received it in such a way they were, they were able to overcome their superstitions. That the gospel was so wonderful and they were so thankful that Paul had delivered that gospel. They treated him like he was an angel. Like he was Jesus himself. That's how great of a love they, they showed toward Paul. He, he says in verse uh, 15 that you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. Your, the eyes in the ancient world were your most valuable possession. And, and Paul says you would have given me everything. That's how, that's how great of a, of a relationship that we had together. How does Paul appeal to them? How does he appeal to those in spiritual trouble He's appealing to a shared personal history. You see, remember our friendship? Remember the love that we had for each other in Christ? Paul is appealing to this relationship that he's, he's built up over time. And this is what we need to do in the church. When people in the church are struggling... It is very difficult, if not impossible, to help them unless you have first invested weeks and months and years in building a relationship with them. Those of you who've been here for some, some time, you receive instant help, don't you, from others. Instant encouragement and admonition and prayer because we know you. You've opened up your life to members of the church here. And because we have this kind of relationship where there is this free-flowing exchange of, of burdens and struggles, there is help for your soul one conversation away. There is strength for your heart one prayer away. Ministry is so much easier is so much more effective when there has been a personal relationship formed and developed and strengthened over time. On the other hand, personal ministry and receiving help in time of need is almost impossible when there has been a failure to cultivate those kind of relationships. I mean, when you keep everyone at a distance from you and the church, what are you saying to us? What are you communi communicating? That you're in sin somehow? And you don't want anybody to know about it? You don't want any help? Is that, is that what you're saying? Or are you telling us that you just want freedom to sin in the future just in case? And when that happens, you don't want, you don't want anybody to help you? To find grace in the gospel? You just want this option to, to love and dive into your sin without any accountability? Is that what you're communicating? I don't know. And if you do want that, you can have it. You can have it. But why would you want to destroy yourself that way? You see, all of us 
need to cultivate the kind of relationship that, that Paul is, is appealing to in these verses. Do you have the kind of relationship where others would, would rip out their eyeballs for you if, they, if you needed it? Can you, do you love people in the same way? Hey, if you need anything, I, I, I'll give it to you. I'll give you everything. Paul appeals to that to, to help them. When we fall into sin, we need theology, yes. When we fall into sin, we, we need examples, yes. But we also need a relationship, the kind of relationship where the, where the person can come to you and, and say in verse 12, I, I beg of you. And where that relationship means something. It means something because you have that friendship. Remember three years ago? Remember what we did together? Remember your baptism? Remember how we served at at short-term missions in the Bronx? Remember the joy? Remember the joy you felt? Remember that? Where did it go? You need that heart-to-heart. What happened? You don't want to cut yourself off from the safeguards that God uses to rescue the lost, lost sheep from spiritual danger by isolating yourself from honest, vulnerable, personal relationships within the church. They're not an option. They're not an option if you want to grow in Christ. But sadly, sooner or later, brothers and sisters can become enemies when you tell them the truth. Verse 16, so have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? Once in a while as a pastor, I have to, I have to speak the truth. I'm not really good at confronting people in sin. I, uh, that's not my gift, thankfully. But when it's bad, I have to do it. And to see people turn. Woo! see people look at you with hatred and anger because you're saying this sin is going to destroy you brother this transgression is going to ruin your life and and we know this don't we and so it kind of keeps us back but we can't keep the threat of that happening can't keep you from telling the truth to someone who is in grave trouble. And when you're on the other end of that relationship, and then they're, they're appealing to you from Scripture to turn from sin, and, and there is this hatred in your heart toward them, you're in big trouble. You're in big trouble. If somebody comes to you and says, this is the Word of God, you're in sin, no matter how angry you feel, receive it. Embrace it. Spoken in not the best tone, don't say, well, I don't like your tone. Your tone is offensive. Get over the tone. Receive it. Receive it. It's usually the, the worst kind of, worst tasting medicine that helps you the best. Sometimes truth goes down that way. What were the motivations of the teachers? Verse 17 and 18. They zealously seek you, not commendably, not commendably, but they wish to shut you out so so that you will zealously seek them. But it is good always to be zealously sought in a commendable manner, and not only when I am present with you, false teachers, their motivation is often a following. They want the honor and praise of a huge ministry they've built, so they zealously seek you out, so you will seek them. And, 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 and meanwhile, they shut you out from the blessings of Christ while doing that. Sometimes conservatives can fall into the same trap where they make mountains out of molehills and create false movements for their own egos, you have to be careful. We can fall into the same trap as a small church 
when instead of loving people where they're at, we, we're using them to, to, to build numbers, to add to our church so that our egos and our personal ambitions can be met. We never want to treat anyone like a number. There's four people here, and the fifth comes visits. We want to love them. We want to encourage them. We want to tell them they're all the different churches they can choose from. Love people where they're at for their own good and for God's glory. And Paul says in verse 18, hey, if you're being sought in that way, in a commendable manner for their good and for the, gospel, the glory of the gospel, whether I'm there or not, that's a good thing. That's always good. And now Paul moves in to verse 19 and 20. He uses quite a strong language. He addresses the Galatians as his children. My children. And he likens himself to a mother in labor. Struggling to give spiritual birth again to the Galatians. With whom I am again in labor. This is painful. And then he mixes metaphors when he adds in verse 19, until Christ is formed in you. The word formed is morpho in the Greek. It's used of a fetus developing into an infant. Paul's desire is that Christ would be formed in them. His concern is their, their sanctification that first must be grounded in their justification. We will not grow spiritually when we think we need to earn our salvation, when we're afraid we might lose it. Sanctification and spiritual growth is founded on the reality that no matter how mature I become, I will never not need Christ's righteousness as the sole basis of my acceptance with him. Puritan Anthony Burgess, describing justification, said this, There is no doctrine like, the just, like justification that so naturally increases humility, a holy fear, and self-emptiness. For by this we are taught, even in the highest degree of our sanctification, to look out of ourselves for a better righteousness. Paul in verse 20 says, you know what? This inspired, inspired letter of God, it's not enough. It's not enough. Verse 20, I, I could wish to be present with you now and change my tone. I want to be there with you, face to face. In this context of a personal relationship. I, I want to have coffee with you. I, I want to sit down with you. This, have this heart to heart. I don't want to have to have this kind of tone that I had earlier in the letter when I called you fools. I want to convince you of the superiority of Christ. You see, every letter Paul wrote to, he either knew personally or there, there were churches that were planted by others who he knew personally. And remember, how does, how does Paul's letters end usually? Say hi to... Say hi to him, say hi to this person, say hi, hey, say hi. He's like, he, he knows everybody. Paul's worldwide ministry wasn't a ministry of faceless numbers. He ministered the gospel to people he knew deeply, to people he loved genuinely. That is genuine Christianity. Next month I'm going to the Shepherds Conference in Los Angeles. 5,000 other church leaders. I'm going to hear the best preaching and I'm going to be led in worship by the best musicians, the biggest Christian bookstore in the world, great food, great snacks. And I'm going to experience wonderful fellowship and I'm going to enjoy it. I'm going to thank the Lord for my time there. But I'm also going to realize this. This is not normal. This is just 1%. What's normal Christianity? This past week, in the providence of God, while I was working on this passage, I was studying. Next to me, at the table, there were two, two ladies in their 50s and 60s, obviously from a church. One of them struggling. The other sister is 
encouraging her, counseling her, loving her. At the end, she said, Linda, how can I pray for you? As they got up, she said, hey, you know, the concert in March, we're going to it. Oh, I can't wait for the concert. can't wait for it. And you know what? She didn't have the same kind of theology that some of you have. The theology definitely wasn't good as mine. I went to seminary. I know Greek and Hebrew. But here she was, sacrificing a couple of hours of her day, and I'm just typing on my little computer. This awesome woman of God encouraging her friend who was in trouble. She'll, she'll probably never be invited to speak at Shepherd's Conference, she'll probably never write a book, never have a large following. But I thought to myself, when I left Barnes & Nobles, I said to myself, now that is Christianity. That's genuine, normal Christianity that many of us have forgotten. And so I hope that these verses today would provoke us a little bit, would help us consider change to direct our, our lives so that we would spend time in little obscure bookstore cafes encouraging our friends in trouble with the gospel. That's, that's what it's all about. And Paul models that for us this morning. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, sometimes it can be so complicated in, in American Christianity. We have hundreds of podcasts to choose from. We have hundreds of online ministries to, to listen to. Only you know how many conferences there are throughout the year books and books with, without end. And those are, those are good things, Lord. We don't want to be Debbie Downers. But, Lord, in all of that, help us, remind us what normal Christianity is. Simplify things for us. Help us realize that greatest kind of ministry that we can have is the kind of ministry where we have a friendship with that person, where we can say hard things, where we can cry together, where we can bear each other's burdens, where we can pray for one another. Lord, may that just be a normal part of our lives. Every week, every month, this, this is what we're doing. Hey, you want to meet up? You want to hang out? You want to talk about stuff? You want to go to a concert together? This is where it's at, Lord. Teach us, we ask in Jesus' name.